was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 16. This is the fun-filled podcast where we fully focus our fervent fanaticism on the feature films of the fundamentally flawed but frankly fearless fellow, yes, it's everyone's favourite, James Bond, 007. It's our pleasure to welcome you inside the cubbyhole, take a metaphorical seat alongside your fellow cubbies. Your support for the podcast has been incredible, and we appreciate each and every one of you. Do let us know you're here by liking and following our social media pages. Just search Roger Moore's Cubbyhole on Facebook and Instagram, or More Cubby on Twitter. If you have time, do also leave us a review on whichever podcasting app or platform you use. Uh, They help boost our reach to more Bond fans like yourself. Remember, you can get in touch with the show if you have a Bond question or topic you'd like us to discuss in future. Uh, You can just post a comment on our social media or email rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com, and you can feature in the Q Branch segment. In our last episode, we discussed Bond number 15, The Living Daylights, where we examined a dashing Dalton untangle the web of lies and deception spun by Koskov and co. We thought it was a strong start for the Welshman and set out his stall for a more grounded and grittier portrayal. So how did Dalton follow up this impressive opening? Let's find out as we examine Bond 16, License to Kill. With me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team, who you know are going straight for your heart. Firstly, it's the man who values loyalty over money, which is quite useful for this podcast. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very good. Thanks, Martin. And just to go through um, some of our uh, social media shout outs really quickly this week. Again, so many of you have been getting in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So please do keep sending in your comments. We get so many. So just to go through them really quickly. So thank you to Philosophy and Film. Graham Weitzman, James Dick, Francis Cherulos, that song from that movie, Ken James, at the Nick Amel, David Howcroft, Tracy562, Kenny Stewart, Jeff Weibo, Jane Blonde, um, A View to a Trill, Spy Warehouse, and Tucky and Talkies. Again, so many on Twitter that we'd, we'd run out of time to be able to mention everyone. On Facebook, thank you to Wendy Ashall and to Gareth Rogers for your um, comments and your likes. And also to Alan Taylor, Don McAndrew, James Anthony and Steve Spring, who have been getting in touch with us about the Timothy Dalton era. James Anthony mentioning that he's also been following the franchise with us and that he's actually found that Living Daylights is one of his favourites. Don McAndrew saying that he loves the Living Daylights as well and that Licence to Kill also has that haunted cliff edge moment. And Steve Springer said that these are probably two of the most underrated Bond films of the whole lot. So there's been a lot of love for the Timothy Dalton era. So thank you very much for for all your comments and for getting in touch with us this week. Please do keep sending in your comments and your questions. And secondly, it's the man whose home is adorned with fish sculptures, one with a human head in the bedroom, even one that winks at you next to a swimming pool. It's uh, it's Adam. How are you, Adam? 
I'm very good, thank you, and thanks for um, giving a little check to my love of all things aquatic. I'm really happy that our, our listeners are as uh, keen on the Dalton films as we are. Uh, just going back to Living Daylights, um, we were talking a little bit last week about how it's really steeped in the tradition of kind of post-World War II espionage cinema and literature and one thing we didn't even mention was actually the ferris wheel uh, where there's that crucial romantic scene between bond and cara it's the same ferris wheel which hosts a very pivotal scene in the great british spy thriller the third man so just wanted to very quickly get that one out there it's it's even more rooted in the classics than you think worry well, can i just say when i went on holiday to vienna i went on that wheel did you did you get frightened by the same ghost train no, that's not there anymore. So I uh, I got frightened by a wasp. Does that count? It's not, not really the same, is it, if you have to run away from a wasp? I don't think Bond would do that. Yeah, he didn't see the the murdered corpse of Saunders and then run away from a bee. That would have ruined the moment, I think, Phil. <laughs> okay, and last but not least, making a welcome return to the cubbyhole. It's the man who would never greet a group of shady Chinese businessmen by speaking Japanese. It's Nick. How are you, Nick? Hello, thanks, Martin. Uh, thanks, guys, for having me back. Uh, I've been I've been watching along with you guys. It's been a different perspective on the bonds. Really watching them in their order of release and seeing how they change, and listening along to the podcasts. So your guys' opinions. I was going to ask you actually, Nick. Yeah, because I know you've been uh, watching along with us. Are there any particular films that, seeing them in context again, you've you've managed to massively reevaluate? Because there are a couple of films for me which um, I felt were a lot better returning to them than they were before, and then some which are a little bit worse. I think perhaps uh, Moonraker. It kind of makes more sense in the context of, of following up Spy Love Me in being such a big adventure and then obviously in the time of star wars and other blockbusters the craziness and the comedy makes more sense and then i think the living daylights every time i watch it i kind of think it's underrated despite the fact the second half in afghanistan can be a bit queasy <laughs> in <laughs> politically but i think the quality of the filmmaking is is really good and living daylights and kind of a leap from a view to a kill Okay, very good. So uh, let's crack on with this nasty bond. It's over to Adam and Ellen for the film synopsis. Thank you very much, Martin. So yes, License to Kill, the 16th James Bond film and the first to use an original title not taken from Ian Fleming's work. It's the fifth and final consecutive Bond film for John Glenn as director. And it is also, of course, the second and last Bond film to star Timothy Dalton as 007. It's also the last Bond film for three key contributors who've been with the series way back when, since Dr. No. It's the last screenplay co-written by Richard Maybaum, the last title sequence designed by the great Morris Binder, and of course, the final Bond film to be produced by the great Albert R. Broccoli. So License to Kill is released in June 1989. That's one year after Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! License to Kill is made on a budget of $32 million and it goes on to gross $156.1 million. And adjusted for inflation, that makes it the least successful Bond film ever. Part of the reason for that would be to do with it has a much higher rating. It's still the only Bond film in the UK to receive a certificate 15. To learn also why that might be the case or not, let's go over to Alan. 
Right, gun barrel, Dalton, bang! Blood dribbles down. It's Felix Leiter's wedding day, but Scarface on a budget, Fran Sanchez is on the loose. What did he promise you? His heart? Give her his heart. But Bond hooker ducks his getaway plane and gets Leiter to the church on time. Ish. Cue titles. After Leiter's wife Della flirts inappropriately with Bond throughout the entire reception, Sanchez gets sprung and he kills Della and feeds Felix to the actual sharks. Bond's bloody livid and in the warehouse where it happened feeds bulldog-faced traitor Killifer to the same sharks along with his massive bribe. What a terrible waste of money. But Bond's still bloody furious and M's hopping mad too, so Bond gives his notice. We're not a country club, 007, and celebrates by nicking a plane full of drugs from shifty American yachtsman Milton Crest. Then, in a dive bar brawl with that guy from The Usual Suspects, Bond teams up with surprisingly airheaded military pilot Pam Bouvier to bring down Sanchez Escobar. In fake banana republic Isthmus City, Bond splashes the cash and finally meets the Lord of the Drugs. Got a problem solver? More of a problem eliminator. Then Q turns up on his holidays with a case full of gear. I hope you don't snore, Q. And Bond nearly offs Franz Castro before getting kidnapped by half the cast of Enter the Dragon, who get blown up by half the cast of Kelly's Heroes. Bond wakes up in Casa Sanchez, where he sets up shifty yachtsman crest as a traitor by planting a load of dosh in his decompression tank. And when Pablo Sanchez finds out, he literally makes Crest's head explode. Bond shags Fidel Sanchez's missus for no apparent reason and gets invited on a tour of his drug factory, which he set up on an abandoned set from the Flintstones movie. On the tour, that guy from Sicario blows Bond's cover, who blows everything up and ruins Scarface's mega drug deal with the Chinese. Pam sends Sicario into a meat grinder, Bond blows up four lorries containing enough coke to knock out Keith Richards, avenges Felix by burning Sanchez alive. You could have had everything. Don't you want to know why? And treats Pam to his magic penis in a swimming pool while Q gets smashed on martinis. The end. Thanks a lot, Adam and Ellen. So, License to Kill, of course, it came out in 1989, a big year, a competitive box office, lots of uh, different films, Batman, Lethal Weapon, Ghostbusters, Star Trek, competing against a lot of different films. And uh, obviously, the violence ramped up considerably in this film, even from the Living Daylights that we reviewed in our previous episode. So I say, watching this one as a child, I remember not really understanding the plot very much being petrified of Sanchez and kind of looking away from the screen during the, uh, the unpleasant murders. Uh, so my memories of this film are not very happy, uh, but coming back to it, I mean, it's just incredible when, when you do understand what's happening. Uh, it's a real treat. Some excellent performances, even from the minor characters, when we get a ruthless Bond gone rogue with his uh, personal vendetta. So where do we want to uh, start on this one? Should we go to uh, Nick first? What are your impressions of License to Kill? Yeah, I've always really liked this one. I think when I was a kid, it was mainly because there was a massive truck chase and loads of things exploded. But uh, as you say, uh, as you compare it to the others, it's it's more of a standalone film than many of the Bond films. And I think that it would almost be more appreciated not being a Bond film. It is very much, it takes on being a late 80s thriller, a drug thriller, and it, and it really digs into that. It takes the, the violence. The violence is more like Die Hard than, uh, 
than James Bond. Yeah, I love this one too, and, and definitely underappreciated. I think along with The Living Daylights, outside of Bond fandom, the two Dalton films just do not have, I think, the critical prestige that I, that I really think they're owed, particularly for doing what they do at the time. I mean, we talk about this one being really buried at the box office. It's kind of caught between the more adult films like Tim Burton's Batman and Lethal Weapon, and then the more sort of child-friendly films that, that come out against it. But it is just so radical in terms of the Bond series. It's pushing the character of Bond and the violence that they can get away with, and indeed just the form of the Bond films, really to the edge of, of what is possible for them. And it kind of introduces, I guess, to the series, the legacy of Bond being compromised. And that's not really something we've seen majorly before outside of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But it's something that actually carries forward into every single film that they make after this one. And yeah, we talked a little bit about how Living Daylights kind of harkens back to classic spy thrillers and how For Your Eyes Only takes on a more autumnal tone. But I think this is the first time really since Honor Majesties that we go really radical with actually what the Bond films look like. And we don't go this far off formula again, probably until we get to Daniel Craig, I'd say. Yeah, I'd, I like the fact that Bond seems a little bit out of control in some places. Like he takes decisions that we certainly haven't seen him taking in previous films, because I guess in previous films, he, there's always a, a way out. Uh, but in this film, he does get caught unnecessarily in a couple of places. I'm thinking when he starts slashing the drug bags underwater, uh, there's not really any need for that. And then he's swarmed upon by the guys from the Wavecrest boat. And I guess he, he does make an improbable escape also in this one. Uh, but it still feels a lot more realistic, doesn't it? A Bond kind of getting into trouble because he's overcome by this sense of rage. Yeah, I think you get to see a more cunning side of Bond in this. He seems to be improvising, but he's kind of showing his smarts and how he can play the villains off against each other. You never quite think he has a plan for what to do because he's... He's pent up, you know, he wants revenge. But at the same time, he's, he's toying with the villains. In a way, we generally see the villains toy with him, so it was kind of a nice switch around. The part for me where I think it also, there's a much more emotive sense to this film is the fact that obviously at the start we see that Felix Leiter brought back as David Hedison for the second time is obviously getting married and, and we get these cues back to obviously Bond being married and obviously there's this right, that really touching moment where Felix goes to Della and basically says, you know, oh, he was married a long time ago. And it kind of builds up where you know something is going to happen because you know that Fran Sanchez is going to escape and that something is going to build from this. But it kind of, it, that tension builds from the very start. And I think Bond is so angry throughout the film. There's no point where he's kind of, is re relaxing or anything like that. He is literally intent on killing Sanchez. That is his only one purpose in this film. And it's, it's kind of different from anything that we've seen before or since, really. Yeah, and it is really important to talk again about Timothy Dalton as Bond, I think, because as well as the increased realism and bloodthirstiness of this film, I think just the layers and the texture of Dalton's performance in this is absolutely mesmerising. You very rightly... Um, they'll talk about that scene where they have the moment after the wedding which calls back to Tracy and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Dalton doesn't really say anything in that scene. He's very terse, but you can just tell from the utterly haunted look on his face just how deeply scarred he still is from that experience. And yeah, he combines in this performance that sense of rage that, that you've talked about and, and the fact that he is taking real glee 
in killing people and causing chaos in this film. He doesn't need to slash all the drugs underwater. He doesn't actually need to blow his cover on the yacht and shoot the guy who killed Sharky, but he just in the moment decides, right, I'm, I'm going to take you down, and I don't care if I get taken down in the process. And there's a lovely desperation and fragility to his performance, along with the anger. A couple of scenes that, that really stand out for me are one after the bar brawl, when the boat breaks down and he just asks Pam for her help to get him to Sanchez's city. And he's almost pleading with her. He's saying, please, will you help me now? I, I'm, I'm really at my wits end here. And then just the very end and, and the look on Dalton's face after he's taken revenge, he looks like a hollow man. He looks like an absolute shell of himself. And it is a, it's an astonishing piece of acting through the whole film for me. Uh, yeah, I thought from like going right to the start of this film, the way you're introduced to Bond, he's not on a mission. It's like it's a it's a personal thing from the beginning. You kind of get the sense of more Bond as a human being. He has friends. I think Sharky seems like a small character, but I think he's very important and Bond seems to care for him. And we get the impression that Bond knows Felix and his wife outside and it's personal even before the murders or you know attacking Felix that this is a more kind of you're seeing Bond as a human being not just as an agent it doesn't feel artificially created you kind of get the sense these are his close friends and he probably doesn't have that many it's doubtful he does. And of course, that also comes through in just how familiar Della is with him, you know, during the, the wedding. I mean, Alan had a bit of a joke about it, but actually it is really lovely to see and it's very tender. And there is a, a great softness and humour to it, which, you know, we don't normally see from Bond, particularly not the Bond as Dalton has played him. I just wonder what they got up to on the stag do, do you? Bond, Lighter and Sharky out on uh, the tiles. Maybe they went down to Miami, hit up the clubs. I, I like to think that the stag do had all the different Felix lighters came <laughs> and uh, they all went to like a Harlem club and just hung out and occasionally one of them would disappear into the floor. Well, yeah, David Hedison, I think they did a good job bringing him back. I mean, he is quite old and I'm not sure whether at 61 he'd be flying out of that plane doing a parachute into his own wedding. <laughs> but I was pleased to see him back because he was really the only... I mean, we've derided Felix Leiter in previous episodes, but he's the only one that we had any kind of affection for. He did a good job in Live and Let Die. Uh, so it's nice to see him back, and it adds that personal touch, doesn't it? Even with Bond, and also with the audience as well. We know this Felix, uh, so we're a bit angry as well when some tragedy befalls him. I also wanted to quickly mention as well the fact of going back to also what we've mentioned about Bond being very tender with Della. There's a, I think it's a really great scene that Timothy Dalton delivers when he actually sees her when she's been murdered, and he just sort of he almost screams her name because he's it, it's that shock factor again, and it's it kind of reverberates through the audience as well because you you know that again something horrendous is going to happen, but even for Bond, even he is shocked at what he's seeing. Yeah, it's a fantastically filmed scene, the discovery of um, the two bodies in their, in their house. So there's almost an element of Brian De Palma, who was a director very much in vogue at this point. The fact the camera is very handheld and it's kind of just following Dalton as he pulls the gun out and walks through the various rooms. And then the fact that you've got the ceiling fan whirring behind him over his head as um, he, he cradles Della's body on the bed. And you're just sort of able to look at that, that 
raw emotion on his face. But the fact that this fan is whirring, it kind of suggests the violence that has taken place and the extremity of it. It's a really brilliantly framed shot. And again, a lovely moment from Dalton when you see the look on his face and the gulp and the moment of reaction before you then cut to just the body bag lying on the sofa in Felix's office. It's a lovely little edit that as well. And to go back to your point, Martin, about the fact that it is Hedison, it's, it's the most competent lighter we've seen. He's also kind of the most cuddly lighter we've seen in a strange way. And the fact that he is older in this film, the fact that he's clearly waited so long for this moment of settling down, it does make it so much more brutal when he's mauled because you have that feeling that they probably are genuinely old friends that he was really the only actor they could have used. He had all the qualities at that moment in time to make the brutality of what happens to him really, really hit the hardest. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even mention John Terry in the previous film. I mean, centrist can just take him. don't really care if it was John Terry. <laughs> yeah, we really wouldn't have minded. Presumably Phil wouldn't have cared if it was uh, Rick Van Nutter either who'd uh, met his uh, untimely demise. Can I just say, I, would have been, I still would have been sad if Rick Van Nutter had have been mauled by a shark i i think he he is in the same league as david hedison i think i have i have warmed to rick randleton what about if it had been a uh, norman burton from diamonds are forever i couldn't care less while we're talking about that opening sequence i just wanted to pick up on um on something you kind of hinted at earlier nick with that real world well the in-camera stunt work there are a couple of moments early in the film which christopher nolan who we know is a massive bond fan has clearly ripped off wholesale of course there is the hooker ducking of sanchez's plane which is very much the opening sequence of the dark knight rises when bane's uh, henchman uh, parachute onto the plane and also um the, the actual springing of sanchez the prison van going off the bridge and into the water that's that moment in inception surely which which you know triggers everything which then happens in different layers of the dream it feels, you know, like he, he, he himself, although he's talked much more about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, must also have been a big fan of this one. It does have the Nolan characteristic, that escape of, like, when did he plan this? How did he organise this so quickly? Yeah, I saw that uh, a common criticism of John Glenn's direction is that it's not very cinematic. So I remember that uh, the last time you were with us, Nick, we spoke about that beginning of On Her Majesty's that was very cinematic. I know that you're an, an editor, aren't you? Do you think that uh, it makes a difference that the John Glenn films are not as cinematic? Yeah, in, in some ways, I in terms of the 60s ones, the, the cinematography's generally more exciting than those in the 80s. Be, maybe because he was the second unit, he's, he's really into the action and the stunts are always incredibly done. Perhaps the dialogue scenes are less exciting and and some of the acting from from the like lupe is is rather rough around the edges but i think the storytelling in in this film is actually quite impressive like you do have to pay attention because there's quite a few moving pieces but i i think it's it comes together more impressively than a, a lot of them i know john glenn thought it was his best film and i i think that may be why yeah, he is a much more nuts and bolts director than um, than Peter Hunt and Terence Young in the 60s. He doesn't have quite the style and the elan. 
But I, I think as a nuts and bolts director, he puts them together, I think, incredibly well. There's a real toughness and a leanness to them. They're not doing anything outlandish in terms of the style and how they look. And, and I think, you know, Nick is absolutely right to, to point out that um, if an actor wasn't bringing it naturally uh, to the set on the day, he wasn't the person to bring that out of them. Uh, but I still actually really like... Um, you know what he did and it is uh, one thing to very quickly mention is also the choice of actors grounds the two I guess kind of schools of filmmaking that, that this is drawing on we have two die-hard alumni Grandel Bush and Robert Darby in this film but also in terms of the other villains we've cast Benicio del Toro and Anthony Zerb who are very much from the stellar Adler method school of acting and so they bring that sense of grittier realism I think usually when we have a Bond villain and there are lots of henchmen, they kind of get lost in the mix. This one, Sanchez does have lots of henchmen, but they each have their own individual personality, very dislikable in some cases, Truman Lodge. But yeah, I think, uh, I think it works really well having all of those individual characters helping Sanchez. Previously, we've had villains who want to take over the world and they have one henchman. This man is a part of the drug cartel and he has a vast entourage. So uh, it's a lot more realistic, isn't it? A really great performance by him. Uh, apparently he did some method acting, like he'd researched Colombian drug cartels quite extensively. And similar to Dalton, he'd gone back to the original Fleming books and he wanted to his character to have kind of signatures of the chifra from Casino Royale. Uh, so I think we, uh, in his character, we get his brutality, but we also get his charisma. He probably gets more quips than Bond in this film. He's the one making the jokes. He's the powerful one who Bond is trying to overcome. I really like Sanchez as a villain. He's very menacing right from the beginning. You just, he just comes in and says, cut out this man's heart. And yeah, he is a more realistic villain. And I think we get to know him more personally than a lot. I think in quite a few of the Bond films in the Roger Moore era, you don't really get enough scenes with the villain to give them that much of a personality, where in this film, you really do. And it really sets him out, as you say, he gets some quips. And I think he likes to be the smartest guy in the room. And you, you see that in the scene where Bond's just told him he worked for British Secret Service and he just pretends he found that out from some other source. It means you kind of understand him more. And so the battle of wills between him and Bond makes more sense. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think that it's also a great performance from Robert Darby. I think that he gives a very multi-layered portrayal of Fran Sanchez because from one angle you get also this quite suave and you know charming person and then obviously on the other side of things there's that element of him where there's that sort of paranoia where Bond is sowing those seeds of doubt later on where he's saying you know well, there's only one person in your organization who's trying to betray you so there's that sense of you know sort of maniacal paranoia that he has there's also that sort of ruthless evil streak that he has also you know there's that infamous scene where he dispatches of Milton Crest and obviously one of his subordinates basically says to him what do you want to do with the money and he simply quips launder it. It's just, and the way he delivers it as well, it's just, there's no sense of hesitation there. It's just, you know, it's almost like he does that day in, day out. It's almost like it's his, you know, it's almost like a hobby to him in, in certain aspects. You're right, Bill. It is, it is a similarly nuanced and textured performance from Darvius from Dalton, and that really helps to build that relationship between the two characters. 
I think what I really like about Sanchez, and we name-checked him talking about Kananga in Live and Let Die, who was, of course, the other time that we ventured into the drugs world, much less seriously and, uh, I'd say, successfully than in this one. But also, there's a lot of Scaramanga to him, uh, thinking about, you know, what Martin was saying, about the intelligence of his, his, of his infrastructure. Not that Scaramanga's was that intelligent. He only had, like, two henchmen on the island with him. But it, but it works much better here. And like Scaramanga, Sanchez is enjoying political protection. You know, but the authorities have let Scaramanga live on that island and essentially operate and do what he wants from there in the same way that Isthmus, with its puppet president, is essentially run by Sanchez. Um, and similarly to Scaramanga, I think there's an element of the dark side of Bond to, to Sanchez, the fact that he is very charming and he is darkly attractive and then he's not above getting into a scrap. And the fact that to him, reputation and status and his position as the number one, the big dog, the most vicious, is far more important to him than material goods. He's incredibly blasé about shooting up his factory and losing all the money in the end sequences because at that point, the important thing to him is getting Bond and making sure that he remains the top dog. And of course, we get a nice little cameo from Pedro Armendariz Jr., the son of the actor who played Karen Bay from, from Russia With Love. Uh, so it's nice to see him. It's nice that we do get some, even though it's a very different James Bond film, there are lots of Bondian elements to the action scenes and a nice continuation of uh, actors associated with the franchise. It's a nice touch seeing as Karen Bay always employed all his children to do all his work. All of my key employees are my sons. Blood is the best security in this business. In terms of recurring characters, actually, should we talk a little bit about the use of Q in this film? Because, of course, he's much more front and center and involved in the field and in the action. And for me, this is a great decision putting Q in a much more overtly avuncular role and immersing him in the story. Did, did we feel that worked? Was it, it's obviously also a way to build in some much-needed comic relief. What did we think to Q in this? I, I think it might be Desmond's finest hour. Desmond Llewellyn, for me, has always been Q, and it's, um, I know that obviously Ben Wishaw has taken the role over in more recent films, but I think that in this one, he really does, he kind of also goes rogue along with Bond because he's, he's you don't really see him liaising with them and, and anything like that. He kind of just goes off and, and just realises that is somebody that he probably now sees as a friend is actually in trouble. So there is that lovely moment where he, obviously, where Bond arrives at the hotel and the uh, the porter says that, obviously, your uncle's arrived. Bond just does that great line to Pam Bouvier, well, let's make this a full family reunion and give me a gun. But no, I think that is that builds to a really great, partnership between the two of them because you can kind of tell that Q really does care for Bond. Yeah, I think the the use of Q is very good and the, and the fact that they don't go too far. He's always doing stuff that he could realistically do and it also allows the film to have a few slightly ridiculous gadgets to maintain it being being a Bond film. It's not going to it's not going to leave those behind. In a way, I didn't want Q out in the field because I don't want him to be harmed. Like he was acting as Bond's chauffeur and we, we know what happened to Sir Godfrey Tibbet the last time. So uh, I, I kind of agreed with Bond. I wanted him to get out of the way. But uh, no, notwithstanding that, probably my favourite performance of Desmond Llewellyn, I think. He's given a much bigger role and I really enjoyed his presence. Bond is entangled with uh, two women and uh, the eye rolls of Desmond Llewellyn are quite incredible, especially at the end. I think you, you beat me to the punch once again, Martin, as you always do. Thinking about it again, the fact that Q is in the field, and it's easy for us to forget this because we know what happens in this film, but at the time, you've just seen Felix Leiter's leg 
bitten off by a shark. And the callback to Tracy, there's a really strong rooting in this film of the fact that anyone who gets close to Bond seems to end up dead. And of course, people do care about him be above and beyond the call of duty as Q does. And so watching it at the time, there must have been an awful queasy tension to Q's presence because you don't know if the film's going to go there and the film's going to off him. In Octopus, he's barely saved by a quirk of scheduling. It could have been him rather than VJ who'd have got the yo-yo buzzsaw. There's also actually to pick up on um, his eye rolling at Bond's antics when uh, Pam is particularly annoyed when Lupe's just visited and uh, Q has that line, agents must use every trick at their disposal to achieve their objectives. And Pam very, very overtly calls that out for what it is. So in that case, do we want to talk about the Bond women in this film as we've started to mention them? So obviously Carrie Lovell as Pam Bouvier and Kalisa Soto, who plays Lupe, um, obviously uh, Fran Sanchez's love interest for most of the film. I think that they both kind of add to this film their own dynamics, obviously in terms of helping Bond, obviously at, at different points. Do you guys think the same? Do you think they're both kind of useful characters to Bond in the film? I think in terms, Lupe is an interesting character in terms of she's playing her own game. This kind of Bond is playing everyone against each other. I think Lupe is as well. She's kind of, she's in a very tough situation and she's just trying to work her way out. So she seems to be manipulating Bond just as much as he is everyone else. Yeah, that's an interesting point to make about Lupe, because in my mind, I was thinking as a kept woman, she doesn't seem to have the nuance um, or the sort of awareness of that that, say, a Domino Deval or a Andrew Anders in The Man with the Golden Gun has. Her only agency in this is her body and, and her ability to seduce people. But you're right, she, she is using that to play her game and, and she ends up, it's suggested with the, uh, the president of uh, the city at the end of it. So it's clearly worked for her. There is an element to which Talisa Soto's performance perhaps isn't as expressive as, um, as it could potentially be. But I wondered actually to give her credit for that. Is part of that conveying a sense of weariness and, and of emotional almost numbness in the character? She must have seen utter horrors, which is why perhaps it's not as expressive as, as we might sort of want it to be. Move, moving on to, to Pam, I guess. Um, I must admit that the, the treatment of the female characters in this film, for me, is, is probably the one major weakness of it, in that Pam is, is obviously a very resourceful character. She, she knows to wear a bulletproof vest, certainly, to, to go and meet Benicio del Toro in a bar. She's seen Sicario and Sicario too. And, and she does many things throughout the film, obviously her ability as a pilot and, and the fact that she saves his life and does everything that Bond kind of quite cruelly at times demands of her. And yet she is constantly underestimated by Bond and constantly kind of cast to one side by him throughout the film, which I guess weirdly because we as an audience are so allied with Bond means that we come to kind of underestimate her and sort of, you know, not quite give her the credit that she deserves. And yet throughout the film, she still fancies him. Like she, she is still jealous when Lupe arrives on the scene. Um, and I've, I've always found a little bit of a weird dichotomy going on there. Do, do you guys find that as well? I agree with you, Adam. I wasn't too impressed with the, the female characters in this one. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the main reasons is the character of Pam Bouvier seems a bit erratic. Like She's supposed to be a powerful agent, but when they escape on the boat, she's uh, rightly angry at him when he says that she's not a professional. Then the next second, they're enjoying a bit of, uh, a bit of necking. Uh, so it's not, I'm rather confused by the character. I don't know what they want to do with it, really. Yeah, I think the, the strange thing with Pam is that uh, 
Bond's basically screwing up her mission. Like she's got a separate mission, which seems to be going fairly successfully because she's turned one of Sanchez's main captains to betray him. And Bond just throws a spanner in the works. So you can kind of um, imagine her, like she seems a good agent. Bond never really saves her. She seems to save him several times, but he keeps screwing it up. So there's almost a, a film from her point of view would be kind of farcical as this British agent coming in keeps messing up all my plans. In terms of Bond being sort of outside of government control on this one, can we talk about that scene with M, which is one of my favourites in the film? And I think the first time and only time, really, that Robert Brown as M, this is, of course, his last performance of his four, is really given anything majorly to do. He, he was quite comradely and chummy with Bond in the previous ones, whereas this one, there's a genuine antagonism between the two. And I think it's a lovely, spiky scene between the two of them where they really analyse I guess the fact that M is a political animal as well as anything else, his hands are tied in certain areas. And Bond is now at the stage where he's fed up with that. He's fed up of just being an instrument of other people. Yeah, I think I've been critical of Robert Brown in the past, but I think he really channels a great Bernard Lee anger into this one. It works really well, the uh, the scene with them. I mean, I, I hope that when one of the guards goes to shoot Bond when he's running away and M stops him and says, no, there's too many people. I mean, I hope that's not the real reason. I hope that he just didn't want Bond to get hit. Well, once, once you've had your license revoked, then you're cannon fodder. You were supposed to be in Istanbul last night. I'm afraid this unfortunate lighter business has uh, clouded your judgment. You have a job to do. I expect you on a plane this afternoon. I haven't finished here, sir. Leave it to the Americans. It's their mess. Let them clear it up. Sir, they're not going to do anything. I owe it to Leiter. He's put his life on the line for me many times. Oh, spare me this sentimental rubbish. He knew the risks. And his wife? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment. And I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Now. I need hardly remind you that you're still bound by the Official Secrets Act. I guess it's uh, a farewell to arms. <laughs> I think the use of setting is, is crucial there as well. Of course, for the tension of the fact that you've got the tower opposite and a sniper on it, so you know that this scene is a pressure cooker and it's going to build to some kind of shootout. But also the fact that it is Hemingway House, um, because Ian Fleming is a very similar writer to Hemingway. He draws a lot of inspiration from him. They both have a very similar muscular prose, which is very direct with a great eye for detail. 
I think there should be a um, mention of Moneypenny as well, because if we think back to on Her Majesty's, Bond tries to resign then as well, and Moneypenny uh, intercepts it. And then this one, she sends Q over and in some ways saves them that way. So she, she's very effective at her job. Perhaps she went and cried over some more Barry Manilow uh, when uh, M returned from Florida and uh, she heard about what had uh, happened. Maybe she could have sent those CDs over to him, chill him out a bit. Was it CDs or was it cassette tapes at this point? And would, that probably would have made him more angry having to listen to Barry Manilow, in all fairness. Barry Manilow without earmuffs. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's just the Beatles without earmuffs, of course. The Beatles, Barry Manilow. Uh, I wonder if there's any other musicians that Bond just sort of name checks at some point as absolutely hating. Or if he hated Madonna, as we all do in Die Another Day. <laughs> Everyone hates Madonna in general, don't they? So I think one area that we could really talk about as well is is the level of action in this film, because as we've mentioned, the violence kind of increases, but also the change in action increases as well. So one of the key points is when Sanchez invites the Chinese delegates to his secret kind of drugs factory, which is under the cover of the um, Jones convent. And it's quite an interesting scene how that all builds. Obviously, we then get into the truck chase moving further into the film. What do you guys think of that? Do you think it's a good way for the film to to build to its final finale? I think it's kind of a, a fake out because they kind of build up the base and it's going to be another kind of hollowed out volcano type shootout. And instead it just instantly explodes like it's a Quantum of Solace Hotel. But then you don't mind because it turns into this amazing truck chase. There's also the kind of wink that cars tend to explode for the tiniest reason and James Bond and now this is tankers full of fuel so they will genuinely explode. Yeah there's a lovely tension um, in the in the the drugs base itself when of course uh, we reintroduce Dario Benicio del Toro into the action who we haven't seen since the bar brawl and it's crucial because of course he's the only person close to Sanchez who knows for definite that Bond isn't who he says he is and is actually there to, to cause chaos. And so there's a lovely series of glances where Del Toro half recognizes him. And so there's a lovely build of tension where Bond's sort of desperately trying to keep this mask on and his back to, to Dario in order to not be recognized. And of course it culminates in that, that fantastic sequence when Dario goes into the meat grinder, thanks once again to Pam. Yep, she's there to save Bond yet again. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree, Adam. I think that, that whole closing scene for me is really great. And I never really realised that um, the scene where obviously Bond is above the grinder, where obviously it's going at full speed, when they were shooting that scene, Del Toro has to cut the rope between his hands. And he was so intense with that scene, he actually sliced Timothy Dalton's wrist open by accident. Fortunately, obviously, they had medics on, so he managed to stitch him up and so on. But it's just astonishing the, the amount of energy and the amount of, you know, the focus between those two actors in that one sequence is astonishing. Yeah, I think for me, Dario is probably one of my favourite minor characters of any Bond film. Just so well acted by Del Toro. And of course, Del Toro is one of the only actors to win an Oscar after being in a Bond film. Dench and Connery being the other two. So I think he does uh, an excellent job. Just the, the physicality of his performance, you're really sold. I mean, we've said that we're sold on the fact Sanchez is a villain, but uh, I think Del Toro does an excellent job with, uh, with a small character. 
I think that that's also well structured in a little way because we're used to kind of the bomb, the main villain goes, okay, now I'll leave you to die here. And then Bond inevitably escapes, where in this one, Bond kind of gives him a reason to go off and hunt out his other guy who's betraying him. So it, it kind of makes sense for him to go off rather than go, oh, I'll just trust this henchman to kill you. Which, of course, culminates in one of the most uncomfortable of Dalton's uncomfortable witticisms when Heller's driven in on the forklift and he just quickly dusts off the line, oh, he must have come to a dead end. Dalton has this kind of, when he's doing the quips that he's slightly embarrassed by, he kind of looks over, he does it in the living daylights as well, where he's just, he's just like, I did Shakespeare, why am I saying this? He did Shakespeare, he did Heathcliff, but then he did also do Flash Gordon, so he's, he's not entirely above this sort of thing. And, and latterly, he's in the last two Toy Story films. I'll tell you the one person that Dalton doesn't really joke about when they meet their end is, is Milton Crest, of course. I mean, that's probably the only time Bond sees a villain killed and is himself as horrified as um, some of the people around him. Yeah, I mean, that whole scene is a great one. I mean, that scared me as a kid. It, there's a point of it that still scares me now, that whole scene, where I was, because I think it's the way that it's shot and the fact, as you say, Adam, that, that Bond isn't expecting Santos to do that. He probably expects him to shoot Crest or to probably drown him or strangle him, something like that. So the fact that it's such a violent, horrific end as well. So it's, it's kind of, it's quite shocking that they obviously, they, they keep it on his face, which then obviously starts to expand as the air pressure increases and then obviously as it just completely goes overboard. And it's, it's, it's one of the most shocking, certainly but one of the most memorable scenes out of any of the films. I think it deserves to be in it because, you know, Milton Crest as a character is a really slimy, un unlikable character. So he kind of, he probably does, he got what was coming to him anyway. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Phil. I think uh, the, the deaths are reminiscent of previous films. Like we've had on Her Majesty's, we had... He had a lot of guts, and uh, in Live and Let Die, of course, Kananga dies in a similar fashion, the pressurization. But in, in those ones, they were played for comedy, whereas this one, it's definitely grounded in realism, isn't it? It's very uncomfortable to, uh, to watch. You're not really lapping your head off in the way you are when Kananga goes banger. It's, for me, the second most satisfying death in the film. The first being, of course, when Franz Sanchez finally offs everyone's least favourite, most irritating, yuppie stereotype, Truman Lodge. I mean, there's a character who should have been in The Wolf of Wall Street and sort of ended up in a Bond film, isn't there? Yeah, it's kind of like American Psycho gets wiped out by the Mexican drug cartels. I heard that um, Truman Lodge's car, the only thing he plays in it is Huey Lewis and the News. They haven't gone really for bankers as, as the main nemesis in Bond yet, have they? I mean, I, I guess sort of Elliot Carver straddles that in the media world when we get to Tomorrow Never Dies. I still maintain Ellen Musk is the next actual Bond villain. I've I've always said this and I always will. Ellen, Eli, Ellen, <laughs> Ellen. He's got Bond's car, so he, he could he could do it for sure. Yeah, I think his spacesuits are based on the Moonraker spacesuits. When are they going to just do um, Hank Scorpion, the Bond villain from that Simpsons episode? Because that's a perfect one, ready and waiting. Don't call me Mr. Scorpion. It's Mr. Scorpio, but don't call me that either. Call me Hank. Yeah, Great. Scorpio. Swim. Okay, so uh, now we'll go over to Phil 
who's going to take us through some of the cars and gadgets from License to Kill. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So there wasn't really a huge amount of focus on cars this time per se. So basically Bond, for the most part of the film, is just kind of using cars to get around. So when he's with Felix Leiter and Della, he's got a Lincoln Mark Seven. When he's with Q in Isthmus, he's got the Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow Mark II. But of course, what we really want to talk about is that closing scene with the lorry chase. Of course, Remy Julien returns. This time he's back for kind of his final role with the franchise. And it ties in with a partnership deal that the filmmakers had with Kenworth, the American truck company. So Julien went to a French driver called Gilbert Bataille, who at this time in um, history, I believe he's still the only person at this point who was actually able to drive lorries on half their wheels. So obviously this was a 10-wheeler that he was driving in the film. And he had to basically do it for the distance that they needed, obviously, with the Stinger missile sequence. Instantly enough in the sequence, we also see that Bond then has to use a separate vehicle to basically drive through the flames. So again, this was another Kenworth W900B that he drives. Bataille was again chosen to drive through the flames. But unlike, obviously, lorries for real, you can't just lift them up onto their, off their front wheels. So what they had to do is construct a separate rig on the Kenworth that basically gave a second steering wheel with hydraulic rams that lifted the whole front of the truck so that it could drive through the flames. So again, not really a huge selection of vehicles that Bond gets to use, and obviously the Kenworth chase is probably the biggest element of the film. The next biggest element is really the gadgets, because Q kind of comes to the rescue for Bond throughout many points of the film. So among the gadgets, we've also mentioned the spy holiday kit that Q brings along with him. There's also the special yard brush that also doubles up as a microphone receiver. Amusingly, even Q throws that away. So despite the fact that Q always kind of tells Bond to bring back his equipment in, in working order, even Q is quite dismissive of his own devices. Just a few of the other items that he uses, obviously Bond for the first time in the film gets a signature gun, obviously that is only calibrated to his fingerprints and that saves his life obviously when the, um, the Hong Kong narcotics squad try to shoot him with it and obviously fail to do so. The other key device as well is the dentonite plastic explosive which is masqueraded as toothpaste and the cigarette packet. So that's just a really, really quick history of the cars and gadgets in the, the film. There, were, there was one more thing which they mentioned on the truck chase, which I liked, which I'm not sure I noticed before or haven't for a while, was when uh, Sanchez is shooting at him and the, the gun ricochets play the bomb theme. It, it was a nice kind of comic element in the middle of what's otherwise a serious chasing. I only noticed it this time. Is, is that the first diegetic use of the Bond theme uh, since VJ's uh, Snake Charming in Octopussy? I think so, yeah. You should listen to this. It's just, it's early on when Sanchez's car pulls up uh, beside the, just after Bond's landed on the truck from the plane and uh, Sanchez shoots at him with an Uzi. That reminds me, actually, in the previous episode, I said that the Roger Moore groan should be used more widely in cinema, and they should just like have it as a bad guy groan. The guy who grabs Pam Bouvier's shotgun in the bar, he does do a bit of a Roger Moore groan. I'm, I'll try and fit it in here. 
there is a bit of Timothy Dalton groaning, to be fair, in this one. There are a few moments when there's a bit of a Welsh, oh! so he's sort of paying tribute to the Moor grunt as well. Okay, shall we head over now to Buy the Book 007? Adam, what similarities and differences do we have? Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much, Martin. So, although this is the first Bond film to use a non-Ian Fleming title, there are actually two Fleming texts which it draws quite heavy inspiration from. The first, as we've talked about before, is Live and Let Die, and so it's obviously very fitting that David Hedison, who played Felix Leiter in Live and Let Die, the film, uh, returns for this instalment. So, in Live and Let Die, the film, you'll remember that in Pursuing Mr. Big, the action moves from Harlem in New York to Louisiana. Uh, in the book, it actually moves to Florida, where we have, similarly to uh, License to Kill, the film, a warehouse full of tropical fish tanks, which is being used for smuggling. In the film, it's Sanchez's drugs. In the novel Live and Let Die, it is pirate gold, which Mr. Big is using to fund a smirch and his own operations. And in the novel Live and Let Die, this is the point at which Felix Leiter, in investigating this warehouse, is captured by Mr. Big and is uh, mauled. He loses a leg and a hand uh, in a shark attack. And actually, the note that is left on the body is exactly the same in uh, this film and the book. He disagreed with something that ate him. And this has quite wide ramifications in Fleming's novels. This is only the second in the series. But from this point, his physical disability means that Felix Leiter has to leave the CIA. And from then on until Thunderball, he's with the Pinkertons, which is a private detective agency and is sort of operating as a kind of ace in the hole for Bond, someone he can draw from outside of governmental forces to help him in his investigations in the novels. The other work of Fleming that we draw upon, actually, is another short story from For Your Eyes Only, uh, which is titled The Hildebrand Rarity. This is a short story set in the Seychelles in which Bond and a sort of well-connected local contact, Fidel Barbie, end up on the yacht of Milton Crest, who in the short story is played as an uncouth US millionaire. So kind of as he is in the film, um, the yacht itself is, of course, called the Wave Crest. But actually, the character of Crest in this short story is much closer to that of Franz Sanchez in the film. He is a violent person uh, when they go on a sort of hunt for a tropical fish, which Crest is determined to find the Hildebrand rarity of the title. He dumps poison into the ocean to kill all the fish and uh, so get his prize that way. And it's also Crest, actually, who is abusing his wife in the short story and has the same stingray tail used to whip her, called in the short story The Corrector. Now, the plot of this short story sees Crest actually murdered in secret in the night by having the Hildebrand rarity fish stuffed down his throat. And in the short story, Bond finds the body and instead of raising an investigation, decides to throw it overboard and clear up the crime scene, taking a sort of moral stance at the fact that this is an odious, dubious, violent and abusive man who he decides the world is better off rid of. And so there is a little bit of similarity in that short story. Of course, we use the names of the characters and a little bit of where Franz Sanchez comes from comes from the literary character of Crest. Of course, we haven't used the Hildebrand rarity as a title of any Bond film, nor are we likely to, but it does make an appearance in the latest Bond film, Spectre, in which uh, the safe house in which Bond and M meet before the final battle in London takes place in a shop called Hildebrand Antiquities. So this is actually going to be the final instalment of Buy the Book until we reach Casino Royale. So for the Pierce Brosnan era, we're going to be going beyond the book. That's uh, that's interesting about the 
Pinkerton connection. I didn't I didn't know that because then as then the plot of this is similar to Red Harvest, the National Hammett film, where the main character is a Pinkerton. Probably coincidence. Oh, but no, well, maybe, but it's still very interesting. I didn't know that myself. Yeah, I think if they released a Bond film called the Hildebrand Rarity, it might do worse at the box office than this one. Yeah, I mean, they were pushing it with Quantum of Solace, which at the time I remember predicting was probably going to be the next title. And at the same time thinking, well, oh, I hope they don't use it, though. It's, it's not the best sounding one. OK, so we'll move over now to the next segment, which is now I know you. I'm working on the JW. I'm working on it. Here's the real one. secret agent that english secret agent from england okay so this segment is where i take a look at the callbacks to previous bond films uh, so even though we've mentioned that this film is a very different type of film in its tone there are still numerous bondian callbacks throughout so of course we have the live and let die connection where bond takes on a drug lord and the felix the genuine felix lighter uh, we also get some underwater scenes in this film so we get the return of the yellow underwater sleds that we've previously seen in Thunderball and The Spy Who Loved Me. Of course, the action scenes underwater, thankfully, much more fast-paced than, uh, than Thunderball. We also get some callback to On Her Majesty's, so the dialogue between Bond and Leiter and Della, who doesn't know that he was married, or is slightly confused that Della is such a great friend and doesn't, hasn't been informed that Bond used to be married. You'd think that Felix would have mentioned that. Um, Return of the Manta Ray as well. Bond uses a disguise. Uh, he disguises himself as a Manta Ray. And we've said in all of the, or most of the previous aquatic Bond adventures, there is some pointless scene of a, of a Manta Ray or a Stingray going past. And this time Bond becomes one himself. We also get some accidental callback, which I don't think was meant to be a callback, some lazy copy and paste from the previous film. You may notice that the head-up display of the Stinger missile is exactly the same as the one used by Bond in his car from The Living Daylights. And they've even kept the temperature, which says freezing, in this film as well, which surely was not freezing in the middle of the, uh, the desert. So I thought that was quite a funny mistake. And uh, obviously, we could also say more obvious callbacks to the living daylights. We get the exploding truck off the mountain. Uh, we get Bond hanging onto a plane for dear life. And we also get him kicking someone out of a plane. Necross was holding the boot. He got the boot. Uh, and this time, the pilot is holding the door for some reason for an extended period as he, as he falls to his doom. Of course, there's no pun opportunity in that one there. I'm not sure whether he could make a pun out of holding the door. But those are the, uh, the, the callbacks that I found to this one. You guys, did you get any others or what were your favorites? I think it is a lesson not to invite James Bond to your wedding if you want the bride to survive the day. It seems quite dangerous. Yeah, that is very true. He, he's just not a man to, to take to weddings at all, is he? Um, I guess also we have mentioned it, Pedro Almendras Jr., son of Pedro Almendras Sr., who played Kerim Bay. That's a lovely little callback. I was actually quite interested in you mentioning that same yellow underwater vehicle, Martin. It does seem that every villain owns that exact vehicle and that it hasn't really changed very much since 1965. So clearly we've got a Coca-Cola situation where whichever company makes those has clearly cornered the entire market in villainous underwater vehicles. It does seem strange that they keep coming back to this sort of bright yellow kind of banana shaped boat which which doesn't really 
give it any stealth qualities at all. It sticks out like a sore thumb most of the times. So we'll go over now to Q-Branch. What do we have this week, Phil? What do our cubbies have in terms of questions? Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. Yeah, so a couple of things this week, Martin. We've had people getting in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. We had quite an interesting one from Don McAndrew on Facebook. We've mentioned Desmond Llewellyn's role in this film as Q is much more active in the field. But Don was wondering, how many times has Q actually been away from the UK and away from his normal office space and actually been travelling to locations? Well, I did a little bit of research into this, and the answer is 12, in fact. So, in order, the Bahamas in Thunderball, you only live twice in Japan. I think it's Portugal, the wedding in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Twice to the USA, Vegas in Diamonds Are Forever, San Francisco in A View to a Kill, Hong Kong in The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Egypt and Italy, Brazil for Moonraker, Greece for Your Eyes Only, India for Octopussy, Isthmus uh, for this film, License to Kill, and then Germany in Tomorrow Never Dies. We are not counting Scotland as a foreign country, Phil, which I know that you wanted to do in particular uh, for The World Is Not Enough. Incidentally, did he therefore drag the entire wreckage of the Q-boat up to Scotland from London in The World Is Not Enough just to confront Bond with his wreckage? I imagine so, yeah, because he, he probably just had to just pull the whole lot with him. Or he probably got one of his uh, lab assistants to load it onto the back of a lorry, but... Yeah, that wouldn't have been an easy trip up to the Scottish Highlands either way. Okay, so thanks for looking into that for us, Adam. So another question that has come in recently on Twitter was, uh, so this goes out to everyone, so who is your favourite Bond supporting character and why? I think in some way, Oddjob. He's iconic in his own way and he's he almost can live separate from the Bond mythology. So yeah, I think I think Oddjob may be mine. I don't know. I think there's too many to pick from here, Phil. Um, in terms of a supporting an ally of Bond, I'd go back to Pedro Armandez in From Russia With Love. I think his, uh, even though he doesn't get much screen time, I mean, he gets more than his son in License to Kill, but uh, I think he does a really good job in supporting Bond in that film. So I, I love that character. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for the characters who kind of aren't in it very much, but make a big impression with uh, the limited screen time that they do get. So I always return to Charles Gray in You Only Live Twice as uh, Mr. Henderson. You almost want a separate spin-off film, which is just Henderson in Japan, where you kind of learn the whole 18-year history of what he's been doing out there. Okay, good stuff. And the last question this week, again, it's coming from Twitter. So... If you guys could pick any Bond actor to voice the next James Bond video game, who would it be? Does it have to be an actor who played James Bond or just an actor who has been in a Bond film? I suppose you could open it out. The original question was a James Bond actor, but I suppose we could open it out to any actor that's been in the film. I can't quite imagine Dalton having to voice over a video game. <laughs> that feels like the sort of thing he feels a bit below him. Level 12. Or maybe we could get Christopher Walken back and they could be some horse riding level. View to a kill Chris level two. I think Christopher Lee, you could like you could imagine him as Bond and he would have been he would have been a good voice. That'd be a great video game if you could just sort of choose any actor to play Bond in the video game. So it's not necessarily modelled on a Bond actor. So yeah, you can just have a game in which Christopher Lee is playing James Bond in the game. That'd be fantastic. Okay, thanks guys. So that was our Q branch for this week. So of course, if you do have any questions, suggestions, or of course the fan theories, please do get in touch with us. Um, you can do that either on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
or on email. Uh, just search for our, our handles on those sites. Okay, very nice. So uh, we'll go over now our final segment. It's the quiz. It's Adam this week. No, 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 stop getting bond wrong! Stop getting bond wrong! Thank you very much. And in honour of Licence to Kill, the quiz is Licence to Be Killed. So James Bond is, of course, the most long-lasting of all the double O agents. A lot of fellow double O's in the films tend to not last very long. So this is going to be a quiz for all of you. Six questions. All I want you to do in each is write down on a bit of pen and paper which double O is killed in this fashion. So it's going to largely test your knowledge of what's happened uh, and a couple of uh, films that haven't, but we haven't seen in this series yet. So pen and paper at the ready. Question number one. Which double O is killed by getting crushed by a flaming satellite dish in Cuba? Okay, everybody written it down. Uh, Nick has gone double O six. Phil has gone double O eight. Mine has also gone double O six. I can tell you it was double O six. It was, of course, Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. Phil, you got that wrong. I thought you loved Goldeneye. I do, but I, I knew it was Goldeneye. I just couldn't. I, I was torn between 006 or 008, and I just went the wrong side. Yeah, Alec Trevelyan, yeah. former 006. So, Martin and Nick pull ahead. Your next question Which 00 is killed with a knife to the back while dressed as a clown? Let's see what you've gone for. So, Nick, you have gone 004. Martin, you have gone 004. Phil, you have gone 003. I can tell you it was 009 in Octopussy. 009 is the man killed by our knife-wielding twins in Octopussy. So no points there. Next question. Which 00 is killed by falling to his death whilst climbing up the rock of Gibraltar? Okay, let's reveal your answers. Okay, Nick has gone for 005. Phil and Martin have gone for 004. It is indeed 004. Well done. Uh, of course, it's also 002 uh, in the Living Daylights in that operation. So I, I thought that might confuse you a little bit. But uh, no, well done. You avoided the trap. We talked a bit about how useless 002 was last week. Okay, so Martin, you currently have two. Phil and Nick, you have one apiece. Your next question. Which 00 is found dead buried in the ice and snow of Siberia? Give you a little clue. This is the opening sequence of A View to a Kill. Okay, cool, everyone. Uh, so, guys, uh, reveal your answers, please. So, I've gone for 003. Uh, 005. I went 005. 005 as well. I can tell you, Phil was correct. It was 003, found dead in the opening sequence of A View to a Kill. So, still everything to play for. Martin and Phil level on two each. Nick, you have one. Next question. Which double O is shot by Scaramanga in Beirut in the company of a belly dancer? Now they name him as Bill Fairbanks and they do give his double O number, but which is it? Okay, reveal your answers, please. What have we put? So I said double O eight. Double O eight from Phil. Three. I think it was back to double O two for that one. I can tell you that, Martin, you are correct. It was 002, Bill Fairbanks. So, final question. Who's going to take it? 
Which double O agent is killed after shooting the terrorist Renard in the head? And I'll give you a little clue on this one. He shares a double O number with one of our previous double O's. Okay, let's reveal those answers. What have we gone for? Yeah, I thought I can, I'm sure I remember it being 009. 009 from Phil, 004. 009 from Martin, 004 from Nick. It was 009. That is the correct answer. And so at the end of six questions, Martin, you got four correct. And so you are today's winner, which means, of course, you get to pick our closing song. Well, before the podcast, Nick reminded us that Robert Darby has had a rather successful career as a singer as well as an actor. So I'd like to go with him, continuing our tradition of having Bond villains play our outro songs. Let's have Robert Darvey with My Way. Okay, so uh, that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. That was Licence to Kill. Next week, we'll take a break between the Dalton and Pierce Brosnan eras. Uh, but we do have something a little special for you lined up. So do look out or listen out for that. So that's the end for this week. Do check us out on social media. Keep liking and following us and any comments. Much appreciated if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover when we do get to those Brosnan Bond films. So that's about it for this week. I was Martin. I was Adam. Uh, I was Phil. I was Nick. And now the end is near And so I face that final curtain my friends i'll say it clear i'll state my case of which i'm certain i've lived a life that's full i traveled each and every highway and more much more than this I did it my way Regrets I've had a few But then again Too few to mention I did What I had to do and saw it through without exemption I planned each charted course each careful step along the byway and more, more, much more than this I did it my way